On January 23, 2002, Asra Nomani was waiting at her home in Karachi, Pakistan, for her dear friend, the Wall Street Journal correspondent Daniel Pearl, to come back from a reporting assignment. Pearl and his wife, Marianne, who was pregnant with their first child, were staying with Nomani while he was investigating the Al-Qaeda networks that had conspired to pull off the 9-11 terrorist attacks on U.S. soil just a few months earlier. But Danny Pearl never returned home. Pakistani militants kidnapped and held Pearl hostage before murdering him a week later. His captors then released a video of the beheading, shocking the world and galvanizing Nomani in her long and difficult quest to identify Pearl's killers and help bring them to justice. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Welcome to When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategic brand positioning and narrative. I'm joined now by Asra Numani. She's a journalist, author, activist, and co-founder of The Pearl Project, a 31,000-word award-winning global investigative journalism report identifying the network of militants who perpetrated the heinous crime. Asra, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Chitra. I, I feel like I'm with such a good, dear friend uh, going into one of the darkest moments of my life, but uh, but I hope we can share some light with everyone. It's been uh, 19 years, almost exactly uh, like two days shy of that fateful day, January 23rd, 2002, when your world and that of Danny Pearl and his whole family turned upside down. Um, Tell me when you found out that something was badly gone, had badly gone wrong. Well, you know, that day began like any other day for journalists in, uh, you know, posting overseas. We all wake and Danny and his wife, Marianne, were visiting a house that I had rented in Karachi, Pakistan. And Danny went about the business of all his flurry of interviews he had planned for the day. I found a car for him and we stood outside this this home that I'd rented and waved goodbye to Danny. And I, I, I said, see you later, buddy, because it was just like an interview, like any other that we go off to do and then come back home and write down our notes and, and write our dispatches. But that night, Marianne kept calling and calling Danny's phone number and he never picked up. We just kept hearing this operator that said the call couldn't go through. And when did you realize something was wrong? So we had a dinner plan that night and we'd gone off to get all of the preparations. I had ordered uh, beer because Danny enjoyed his beer. He called a bootlegger whose number I had gotten and everybody had dinner that the folks that we had invited, but nobody was answering Danny's phone. He was never answering. So at 10 o'clock, finally, Marion and I went sat in front of Danny's computer, went into his inbox. He didn't password protect it. And there I saw the email from the young man who had set up the interview. That's when I just knew something was wrong because the email address was nobudmashi at yahoo.com. And why were you concerned by the email address nobudmashi? So Chitra, you know your Bollywood movies you know what a badmash is, right? A rascal? Yeah, a rascal. So why would anybody in their right mind write no rascal 
at yahoo.com as they're setting up a legit interview with a shake cleric. And I just knew that this something was wrong because nobody would write that. Um, it's the, the Badmash is the bad guy in every Bollywood movie. And I, I just felt and knew in my heart that Danny had walked into trouble. Now, you yourself were in a foreign land. You were also an American journalist. You were a writer working on a book project in Karachi. Um, so when this crisis began to unfold, you yourself weren't really in a great position to know what to do and to respond. I mean, what did you do next and how did you even know what to do? What was that like, that moment? Oh, my gosh. It was so clarifying. You know, I... I wish for no one a January 23rd, 2002 moment, but that was the moment when I just had to learn is every bit of courage and capacity and, and capability within myself to try to save Danny. And so what I knew how to do as a journalist was, you know, investigate. So immediately I got on the phone with other journalists to find out if they knew who this Sheikh Jelani was that Danny was about to meet. I found out then that another journalist locally had gone missing. I called relatives that I have in Pakistan. I called sources. And through the night, we worked it. Um, called the consulate, called the Wall Street Journal office, did everything, you know, that's like old school reporting, called trusted people, called the neighbor, went over, went next door to the neighbor when she awakened for the, uh, the dawn prayer and begged people to help. And it was just a response like I never would have ever imagined. Everywhere I turned, they said they couldn't get involved. Were they afraid? They were all afraid, you know, and that was the moment when I really realized, you know, what happens in a society to the citizenry when you don't have a rule of law, when you can't trust the police, when you have an intelligence agency that you're afraid will come knocking on your door. They were all afraid to get involved. And um, finally, we got the police and uh, two police officers came, a, a guy that we called Captain and then another uh, police officer named Dost, uh, which means friend, as you might know, in, in Urdu. And so, we got them, the house was overrun with police officers and intelligence agents. And, you know, the other thing that I had to do, Chitra, that I, I bet you can connect with is I was born in India and I was born into a script, right? For many women and many girls in our culture. Uh, when I was literally eight years old growing up, I went back to India and a cousin of mine had written into my autograph book, Silence is Golden because we were to, you know, be good girls, right? We were supposed to toe the line, don't challenge authority. And of course I became a journalist and I learned how to raise questions. But in my own culture, I still thought I got to toe the line. I got to wear my, you know, proper shalwar khamis, like the long tunic and the baggy pants, wear my dupatta, the scarf over my head when I talked to the, religious, you know, leaders. And at that moment, January 23rd, 2002, it was like all of the voices inside of my head that told me to be quiet or toe the line just went out the window because I was like laser focused that I had to do everything that I possibly could 
to save Danny. And so um, Marianne and I would joke, we had these, uh, these boots that I had gotten to go, you know, go hiking through Tora Bora to find Osama bin Laden. And, and every morning that I would lace up those boots, we called them our jihadi boots, because uh, we were on a jihad or a struggle for truth and for finding Danny. And, and there was like no more compromise on my identity, no more uh, second guessing myself, no voice within my head telling me to be quiet. I had to do everything strategically and intelligently to try to save Danny. So um, all of your efforts, though, were unsuccessful. When did you find out his fate? Five weeks then into the search for Danny, all of a sudden, I couldn't get any of the police officers or the U.S. consulate officials that had been a phone call away. They'd all disappeared. And I just didn't know where they were. So Marianne and I laced up our boots. We walked to my front door. And at that exact moment, standing at the door, as I opened it, were the Pakistani police officers and the U.S. officials and the FBI agents. And Chitra... Oh my gosh, these were grown men, you know, who have seen the darkest of the dark. And they just stood there, just their faces crestfallen, like as if they had seen a ghost, as if they had seen the worst of the worst. And they had. That's the moment when this police officer named Captain looked at Marianne and said, I'm sorry, I couldn't bring your Danny home. And what had they, had they seen the video? Uh, what, what, what was it that made them look like ghosts? So that night, the FBI agents and Pakistani police officers had gotten a video and they had watched this video that was the quote slaughter of the journalist by Daniel Pearl. And in that video was documented Danny's last words my father is Jewish, my mother is Jewish, I am Jewish. And then those horrible, horrible last seconds. So in that video, then they documented the knife being put to Danny's neck and his head being severed and held then by his killer as if it was some great prize in this jihad that these militants had launched upon with Danny as their victim. What was the reaction on your physical and mental health and emotional health and that of Marianne's? And how did you you uh, recover from it in the coming weeks? And what, what actions did you take after you learned of the video? You know, I really had never, ever understood trauma. I didn't understand the reactions that our body and our minds have to trauma. But I immediately, uh, I did learn that there is no atheist in a foxhole. And uh, I sat outside Marianne's bedroom saying my Muslim prayer for protection for her and her baby in her belly because poor Marianne went, uh, rushed into her room and you know just had a blood curdling scream like I'll never forget. This was, you know, of course, as the world knows, as everybody knows, like this was the worst of the worst of the worst of, of humanity. And, um, and you know, I, I, learned, I learned that 
you know, our, our brains feel this, this tragedy and trauma. And, and then something happens also to have us survive because even now, 19 years later, I cannot even believe that this happened and that this is true. And I learned in those moments afterwards and the days afterwards and the months and years, honestly, afterwards, I learned that we cope by doing this thing that's called dissociation, you know, separating our, our own minds and thoughts and brains from the horror of a trauma. And, and on one level, it's coping and it's healthy. And on another, you have to be careful because it can, you know, remove you from the emotion and tragedy of grief, which was some of my challenge. But, um, but, oh man, Chitra, like it's literally going into the abyss and, um, and figuring out how you will ever emerge again. That, that's what those moments and days were like. And your life was further complicated. I mean, you're uh, you're a Muslim woman, uh, but a non-traditional one. You were married once in the U.S. very briefly, divorced very quickly, and so you were in Karachi, uh, a single Muslim woman with a boyfriend, when Danny was kidnapped and murdered. And then, even as you were finding out the terrible news about him. Uh, you also were about to get some very personal health information about yourself. Tell me about that. Yes. Um, in the fourth week, trying to find Danny before we knew his fate, I realized that something was awry with my body. And I got in a car with police protection and went to the 24-hour pharmacy across the street from the Karachi Sheraton and got not just one pregnancy test, but a few, returned back to my home and there took one test after the next with each one coming back positive for being pregnant. And it was shocking to me because, you know, this wasn't my plan. This was not what I was expecting in this, in this struggle to try to just find my friend. And, uh, and there, there we were now two pregnant women under one roof. I also had this realization. I knew, I mean, the, um, the extremism problem in Pakistan is rooted in, you know, a very ultra orthodox, uh, you know, fundamentalist interpretation of Islam that also says that a woman is illegal or criminal if she's had sex outside of marriage. And in the case of pregnancy, you know, your own baby can be used as evidence against you. And so I just thought, oh my gosh, like what am I to do? And, uh, and, and so we, we kept it a secret. I found a doctor quietly, but I was afraid that even my blood tests would be used, you know, as evidence against me. And and so there was this, this uh, secret, you know, this, this fear. And, and then on top of it, then when I told my boyfriend, you know, he, he just bailed on me because he was already afraid of Pakistani intelligence. And now to get wrapped up in this soap opera, forget it. Um, and so then a week later, we learned that Danny had been 
murdered. And, you know, like I, I, I just don't know, you know, you don't know sort of the, you can have different levels of feeling spiritual, religious or not, but just, it was as if like life came to me as a, as a way, as a course for me to survive and to live in the midst of that darkness. So this was, you know, the double, double uh, experience that I was having to process and figure out answers for this brutal, brutal murder of dear Danny. And then this question within me of what to do with this life within me. So what did you do next? How did the Pearl Project come about? Well, I chose life because I had amazing and I have amazing, amazing parents. They are conservative, but they are humanists. And when my mother learned that I was pregnant, she said, you must have this baby. And my father, oh my gosh, my father, you know, sent me an email literally just that just said, I love you. Cause you know, dads and, and I know your dad loved technology too. And, um, and yeah, my dad used an email to communicate that unconditional love. That's so important. So I chose life. I chose to come back to America to raise my son as a single mom with my parents support grew. I had him in my hometown of Morgantown, West Virginia, where I'm talking to you from today. And, I tell you, I had my first birthday party for Shibley. Uh, that's my son's name. And then with the second one. And um, I chose life. I chose to live, you know, and, and raise him with love and, and um, truth and honesty. But there was this question, the, all these questions still lingering about poor Danny's murder. There was a network of people who were involved in stopping him. And there were so many questions about how they worked, how they operated, and I had to get the answers. And so the Pearl Project began as an investigation at Georgetown University with students to find the truth left behind on the streets of Karachi. And what was your goal? Well, the actual goal was to discover every detail in the plot to kidnap Danny, and in the captivity, the investigation, the court case, uh, every little detail. That was the external objective, right? But clearly there was this unfinished business within me, this grief still not processed. And I came to really understand my brain a little bit more too, because not immediately, but Later, um, I knew that I had to know every little fact in order to be able to process them, the grief. And, and that was just my path. Um, and, and ultimately, the, the external reason that, you know, just stayed with me through every moment of and twist and turn was I just wanted to do right by Danny in terms of the truth and justice for him so that there would be um, no stone unturned and that we could send a clear message as journalists that we stand with our fellow journalists from the newsroom, that we 
will not allow anybody to get away with murder. And, and I just really felt, you know, we couldn't save Danny, but we needed to fight for the truth and for justice. Well, as we mentioned, uh, this is the 19th anniversary, almost to the day that we're recording. This is January 21st, and he disappeared on January 23rd. And interestingly, there have been a, a, a lot of recent developments that are also coming to a head this week, coming week. Uh, talk a little bit about that with respect to the lead culprit and the court he hearings and, and what's likely to unfold. Well, what we discovered was that Nobadmashi at yahoo.com was an account run by this British Pakistani young man named Omar Sheikh. And the Pakistani police successfully prosecuted him in 2002, along with three co-conspirators. That was very satisfying because this is a man who is an extremist and a danger to society along with his co-conspirators. But as COVID was sweeping the world in April, 2020, we got this shocking news from Pakistan that judges in the Sindh High Court in Karachi have decided that Omar Sheikh and his three co-conspirators were gonna be freed from jail. That they ruled that the three co-conspirators were innocent, and that Omar Sheikh was only guilty of abduction, not even kidnapping for ransom. And they ruled that it wasn't even terrorism. So it was such a shock. It was just unbelievable. But it was just like that moment, January 23rd, 2002, when you, know, you have to just kick into action. We learned that we have 30 days to file an appeal, that in the Pakistani courts, the victim's family can file an appeal. And so I talked to Danny's dad immediately and his sister, Tamra, and they decided they were going to appeal. And we got to the business then of powers of attorney, finding a lawyer in Pakistan, filing the papers, just doing all of the work in the midst of COVID. And we did it, Chitra, we did it. We filed the appeal and that, that appeal has been going through the Pakistan Supreme Court for almost, you know, all these months now. And right in any day now, we're expecting a decision. We hope, we pray that Omar Sheikh and the three co-conspirators will remain in jail. And we feel confident, we hope, hope, hope that that will happen. And the U.S. Justice Department has raised the possibility that if Omar Sheikh is allowed to be set free, that he could potentially be brought to the U.S. and tried and uh, tried here, uh, which could potentially be good news, even if it falls through on the other end, right? Yeah, they have this warning they've sort of issued to the government of Pakistan, a message, let's say, that if you can't keep Omar Sheikh in jail, we can take over the case. Because Omar Sheikh was indicted in U.S. court in 2002, and he so he could be extradited and tried in court in America. We feel like the government of Pakistan and the Supreme Court will do the right thing. You know, they have definitely listened carefully to the arguments of the family's lawyer, Basil Siddiqui, and 
the government case also. Um, and so we're really hopeful that that they will be able to do right in, in, for Danny. But the U.S. government has fortunately supported the family. Now, um, in the years since Danny died, you've uh, become a, an activist, too, in addition to being a writer and a journalist. You've taken on uh, the Islamic communities in the U.S. on a number of fronts, uh, notably on Islamic terrorism, extremism, the rights of Muslim women. Uh, you've talked openly about Muslim women and sex and other topics that were taboo. You, Some of your books, Standing Alone, an American Woman's Struggle for the Soul of Islam, and Tantrika, Traveling the Road of Divine Love. Uh, you've written some controversial articles, including Islamic Bill of Rights for Women in the Bedroom and Islamic Bill of Rights for Women in the Mosque. How did the events in 2002 shape you as an activist and getting in touch with your voice? And, and what has been some of the, the response to your positions and your writings? Well, I, I just love the concept of your podcast and you know the kind of reflections that you have us even think about, even that I thought about, kind of pondering issues of leadership in my life. But, you know, Chitra, there we were in the trenches, right? In, in this horrible, horrible moment. And I couldn't agree to the voices in, you know, my ancestry or my upbringing that had told me to be quiet or to sit in the back and stay compliant and be a good girl. Um, and there was so much clarifying during those five weeks for me. First, I had to decide whether I was going to carry this life into the world. Was I going to defy, you know, the shame, the taboos, the laws even that criminalize bringing a baby into the world without a wedding ring? Then I realized in those weeks, what the heck is extremism? What is the claim that they have on our communities? The men who dropped off the photos of Danny in captivity had done that in a mosque in Karachi that women weren't even allowed to enter. What could that be? Like, I knew about the extremism problem within my Muslim community since I was a girl. Because I was born in 1965. I grew up with it in through the 70s and 80s as Saudi Arabia and Iran were dueling it out for, you know, try to out extreme the other country. And but I never reported about it, Chitra, as a journalist. I never wrote one word about it. Danny wrote more about the extremism problem within Islam than I did. And when this happened, and I also realized like the life within me was, uh, you know, literally sacrifice in, in this debate, uh, I thought I have an obligation to speak up. And that was when I first decided to, to move from the news pages to the opinion pages and write columns. And my first column was about the right of a Muslim woman to bring a baby into this world, even if she wasn't married. Uh, because a woman in Nigeria was about to be executed because she had had a baby outside of wedlock. And so that's where I found, I think, this concept of thought leadership, you know, 
thought leadership was an idea that I never even contemplated. And then when I went to the, my mosque in Morgantown, West Virginia, with my little baby, this elder stood in front of me and said, I had to take the back door and go into this back balcony. And I wasn't even allowed into the front room. And I thought, are you kidding me? Like, so the extremists can lay claim to our mosques and our pulpits, but I, as a woman, have to take the back door by the garbage can. And so that was, you know, when I became an accidental activist and, and I didn't know how to be the kind of leader, quote unquote, that like galvanizes people and convinces the other women to go into the main hall with me. But I went on my own and I had my mom with me. So that was, that was my greatest joy. My mom would literally put on this Brooklyn hoodie. It had Brooklyn across the front and she would use the hoodie as her headscarf. And she went in with me Friday after Friday, my son on my lap. And I sat and I took notes on what these men were saying. And I took notes on their extremism and I challenged them on their orthodoxy. And of course that won me great popularity contest, right? At the mosque. <laughs> Not at all. You've been taking on um, Islamic extremism ever since, you know, uh, Danny Pearl was kidnapped and, and beheaded. And you've gotten a lot of pushback and some even here in the U.S., uh, in various communities, have attempted to malign you as an extremist when, in fact, the opposite is true and has been well documented that you are very much against extremism. How do you counter that, that kind of uh, destructive counter-narrative uh, and, and keep working? Well, you know, I became a volunteer in Morgantown for the Rape and Domestic Violence Shelter at one point. And I learned about this thing called the power and control wheel. And it is the, the sort of like a analysis of the dynamics that are used to assert power and control over women in the case of domestic violence with men. But it, you know, it can happen anywhere. It can happen men and men, women and women. Um, and one of the mechanisms is you know, abuse, emotional abuse, verbal abuse economic abuse, right? These are all the levers of power that can be asserted over somebody to get them to be compliant with authority. And so I just started to understand the character assassination as just that, an effort to discredit me so that I'd have no authority, right, in my community. Then I followed the money, of course, you know, the journalist in me. And I saw the, the trail of organizations that are in this network trying to do the bidding of governments that want this status quo to exist like governments in the Gulf countries, you know, that, that believe in this interpretation of Islam and, and their actual, it's an existential battle for them because if you, that's how they keep power and control over their people. So if you start giving women rights, if you start allowing people to speak up with ideas of free speech, then their dictatorships are, are challenged. So I, I got to really understand that it felt really personal, but it wasn't personal. It's just the dynamics of power and control. And, and you know, I just can't even underestimate like just how much love matters when you have battles like this, because my mom was going into the mosque with me. My dad lost all his quote, power and control in the community on the mosque board 
they outvoted him about issue of women's rights at the mosque, but they stood by me because they knew the clarity of of the issue, right? Like that that fundamentally, like we all have to stand up against extremism and we have to stand up for human rights. And so that's what will always be in front of me, along with this clarity of that January 23rd moment, you know, when I last saw this great human being, Danny Pearl on this earth, just, you know, fumbling with his notebook and his technology, getting into that cab to go off for an interview. And just that's so clarifying, you know, when people try to confuse you with all their drama and all their name calling and death threats, even like the things that are meant to get you to just go crawl into the woodwork. So that, you know, love and friendship just was clarifying to me and made it so that even not winning any of these homecoming queen contests at the mosque didn't matter. Like it, it didn't matter. It was, there was a bigger battle to win and still on that effort because it isn't over yet. And in uh, November 2016, you wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying that you, a Muslim woman, a progressive feminist, a uh, registered Democrat, had in fact cast your vote for Donald Trump. And and you took, you, you, you raised this issue of democratic uh, pandering, in your words, to Islamic extremism as one of the reasons for voting for Trump. Uh, can you clarify a little bit what that was about? Yeah, you know, I know it's confusing how a Muslim feminist could vote for Donald Trump, but what had happened is that in the years before, I had seen this encroachment of the powers within my Muslim community that we call Islamist. They are the Muslims who believe in Islam in political governance. So organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood, for example. And unfortunately, they had figured out a way to connect their very illiberal ideas with the liberal establishment of the Democratic Party, basically using, turning Muslims into a race that needed to be protected. So they, they be, you know, really use the minority status within um, the United States to argue that any criticism of issues of women's rights or extremis, extremism was Islamophobic. And I could see through it because I knew their values and their tactics. But unfortunately, I was increasingly frustrated that the Democratic Party was, you know, getting hijacked really by this agenda. And so I made that really, really difficult decision to vote for Donald Trump in 2016. But, you know, the, the op-ed that you talk about that I wrote, I wrote it after the election. And I didn't write it because I wanted to convince anybody to support him. I just wanted folks to understand that it was a complicated vote, those people that had voted for Trump. And I grew up in West Virginia, like I mentioned. I knew many people who voted for him here. And they weren't you know, just this white trash, racist, um, you know, image that would, would then being discussed on CNN to break down who the voters were. And I really wanted to bring humanity back to the conversation. But of course, that went really well, right? <laughs> and looking back now, though, given that he himself uh, 
aroused a bunch of extremists to actually descend on the Capitol on January 6th and the incredible impact that the devastating impact that had uh, on U.S. democracy. How do you reconcile what you had hoped with what actually happened? Well, one more disappointed voter, right? I mean, I, I voted for former President Obama twice uh, and was disappointed in how he handled the Islamic extremism problem. And with President Trump, you know, former President Trump now, disappointed, of course, in the way that he just couldn't get it together, right? Of course, everybody saw the signs and I saw the signs, you know, Chitra, I worked at the Wall Street Journal, so I, I didn't cover him, but I covered his buddies. So I knew they were what they are, um, you know, the kind of rogues of Wall Street, right? That that they famously had become. And it's a, it's a shame. And, 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 and I still, I still, of course, we're all still processing what happened on January 6th. You know, the journalist in me, the human being in me, I still see the same challenge that we face as a society that, you know, if people feel any level of, uh, oh, we have to understand where Muslim extremists come from, you know, there's a lot of a lot of analysis in uh, among progressive politics to uh, understand the socioeconomic condition, the this and the that of um, Muslim extremists. Like that has to be understood too, right? About the the people who decided to do this thing that we could never have imagined of rushing the Capitol, running through the halls and with zip ties and the rest. But in in both situations, the answer has to be some understanding, right? Like we have to get to it. And then we have to, just like I argue in the Muslim community, like we have to challenge the extremist ideology. Like it works on both sides. It works on the right. It works on the left. It works in Muslim communities, Jewish, Christian, uh, all communities. The, the answer still has to be the same where we have to like choose a path of civility and moderation and human rights and and self-determination that's dignified and and um within some you know high level of rule of law and never could i have imagined to as most of the world is reeling uh that we would have faced that in america but that is what happens when we lose control over moderation right and it doesn't become the defining characteristic of society You've um, taken on another difficult challenge now, countering what you believe to be um, a toxicity of political correctness in our public school systems and the dropping of academic excellence standards by some of the most rigorous academic public schools in the country, including Thomas Jefferson High School here in Northern Virginia, and even some colleges such as Harvard University, as a means to combat systemic racism. Uh, briefly, what are your concerns about that? And, and what are you trying to do about it? And what has been the response? Well, you know, we've talked about what made me a mother, what, you know, the circumstances that brought me to motherhood. Well, that little boy you know, became a student in Fairfax County, Virginia, and he, like many other kids, took this test to get into Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. He was into Legos and robotics, and I was Lego coach, you know, being, I was single mom. I straddled all my life and work so that I could be there for him. And we got the good news one day that he was accepted into the school. And, you know, I 
did everything I could, right, to be able to afford to live in Fairfax County, to shuttle him to different activities, keep him on the straight and narrow. And, and then one day, after the tragedy, tragedy of George Floyd's killing, he got a note along with all the parents and students at TJ from our school principal. And she said that we needed to check our privileges. And I just thought, are you kidding me? Like, do you have any idea like what any of our lives has been about? Like, how can you sit there and lecture us about our quote privileges? And what we were, were just we became the fodder in this new politics in K through 12 education of this ideology that's called critical race theory that brings a new extremism, I would argue, to school children. And so there is a very parallel journey that I've been on in trying to challenge ideology. The ideology of critical race theory is one that creates a new hierarchy of human value among people so that at my son's school, we're mostly Asian and our mostly Asian families are considered, quote, white adjacent. And so we lose our status, quote unquote, status as minorities, as people of color, because we've, quote, succeeded. But we're complicated families. We have complicated stories, first generation post-colonial in my family from India. And so I just couldn't um, accept that kind of tyranny, honestly, and started speaking at my school board meetings. And again, it became like accidental leadership and finding other families, organizing. And we've challenged the school system in Fairfax County, Virginia. We've gone to school board meetings. I've helped parents learn to deliver three-minute speeches. And we just learned today that we've won standing in court so that we can challenge Fairfax County's decision to eliminate that test that my son took to get into TJ because they argue that it's a, quote, racist test because we have too many underrepresented minorities from the Black and Hispanic community. But, you know, our argument is the argument of the American dream, which is that we work hard, we have to, you know, make opportunities available for all people, but ultimately, we shouldn't just be, you know, striving for equal outcome. We have to really strive for equal opportunities, and those opportunities have to be made available fairly in society. But you can't just create new targets and uh, create new problems by doing things like this, eliminating the test, putting a hit on Asian students. You have to go about this with real wisdom. As we wrap up, Azra, have you had uh, what I call viral insights in the wake of COVID-19, that moment of clarity that's often brought upon by a crisis? Well, you know, my son and I, when remote learning happened, moved back home to Morgantown, West Virginia, where my parents are in their 80s now. And we live with them. My son helps my father bring drywall, you know, down the stairs for the basement that my dad's been finishing, have a cup of tea with my mom in the morning. And I just value life. I mean, in the same way that when I sat in Karachi and saw 
you know, how life can just be taken in, in an instant in a way that you can't even imagine. That's what COVID did for me also. It just made me realize that this is a gift, every breath that we can take literally. And I, I just every morning try to wake up with a reflection on my intentions for the day and really try to do good. Definitely go to bed at night, always thinking I could have done better, but wake up again, you know, make my bed uh, so that I can feel like I've accomplished one solid thing for the day when I return back to the bed. But, but that's really my epiphany is that um, we have to really just keep doing that constant daily reflection so that we stay true to our inner values and our inner most important emotions really, which is friendship and family. Looking back at that young woman who was waiting in Karachi for her friend Danny Pearl to come home and only to find out that he had been kidnapped and, and murdered, what would you say to that woman about the journey that you've been on? And what would you say to Danny Pearl if he were here today? Oh, Danny, poor thing. I, you know, maybe I still have the survivor guilt because I would tell Danny, I'm so sorry that I couldn't save you. I mean, I've had, I have dreams where I say that to him sometimes, but if Danny were here, oh my gosh, if he were here and he were alive, first of all, he would be the most fun, right? To know during quarantine, he would always have entertainment in any household in which he was living. But this is the same message that Danny gave to me too in life. And this is the message that I would give to that younger woman that I was, which is, you know, live unapologetically. Don't live with shame. Every voice that you have within yourself that questions you and second guesses you, just talk to that voice. Talk to, you know, that and get to the bottom of it, but don't let it define and dictate your actions in this world. Um, you know, I have learned that courage can be lonely, but it's also contagious and you will find your community. You will always find your community because for all that you are feeling, there are so many others. And that's, that's what I try now to communicate in my writings also, because I always think about my younger self, you know, that had questions that doubted myself, that thought I needed to live the life that I should live, not the one that I wanted to live. And, and I want to help others live self-actualized lives from a real place of authenticity and truth. And I would tell that younger woman, you're doing well, love yourself and trust yourself. Asra, thank you so much for joining me on When It Mattered. Thank you so much, Chitra. You know, your honesty and clarity help others see themselves with a mirror that is the best of ourselves. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Asra Numani is a journalist, author, activist, and co-founder of The Pearl Project, a 31,000-word award-winning global investigative journalism report identifying the network of militants who killed Wall Street Journal correspondent Danny Pearl. This week is the 19th anniversary of Pearl's kidnapping and subsequent murder. Pakistani prosecutors are still struggling to keep his killers in jail and bring them to justice. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. 
Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.